Welcome to Square One, powered by FinTech TV. Today, we went deep into the world of barbershops. Small business technology historically has been an underserved segment of the tech industry. But over the last decade, a number of interesting businesses have been built serving this cohort, which has inspired a variety of applications. I talked to Song Laurent today about building Squire, an all-in-one platform that helps barbers run their barbershops. This was a fun episode. Song and team have raised over $100 million to build this company. And though they're doing really well, the journey has been anything but smooth. From initially buying a barbershop and running it to learn more about the space, to operating through COVID. We broke down building through adversity and, and more in this conversation. Welcome, Song. It's a pleasure to have you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, Song, we're going to dive into a bunch of things today. You know, Squire as a business, uh, the promise of vertical SaaS. And then you guys have a really interesting story of building through the pandemic. Um, but I want to start with how you came up with the idea. You know, you and your co-founder have pretty traditional backgrounds. Um, talk a little bit more about the journey to, to founding Squire and, and what the company is. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, thanks for having me. Um, both my co-founder and I hadn't really worked in tech prior to starting Squire. Um, we didn't have any background in, in this industry, barbershops or hair or anything like that. I was actually a corporate lawyer which I think you, you were as well. So you might uh, understand my pain coming from, from that world. Um, Dave was in business school and had, uh, had been working in like finance. Uh, he's at JP Morgan. And, um, and uh, we both weren't really happy on the corporate trajectory, just going down that pathway. Didn't, weren't really enjoying uh, our, our professional lives. We wanted to do something more entrepreneurial. So uh, we were friends prior to starting Squire. And we would just brainstorm ideas like what could we work on that would be better than this, that would be more fulfilling, that could potentially have, uh, you know, be something that could allow us to create a legacy for ourselves. And we would uh, bandy ideas back and forth. And eventually we came across this idea of the barbershop space, which was really based on our experience growing up. I started going to the barbershop around six or so, like a lot of people with my dad. And here was over you know, two, two decades later, and the process really hadn't changed. It was very cash-based, uh, long wait time, just an antiquated experience. Yeah, this is around 2015. Um, at that time, you know, it was Uber for everything. Uh, software was already really just consuming so much of our lives. But this one area um, was just totally untouched and totally ignored by Silicon Valley. So that was the impetus of the idea. Um, we thought, how can we improve the process and experience of getting a haircut, um, which is also amazing. You know, you get a haircut, you feel like your best self. Um, you have great conversations in the barbershop. It's like a very communal um, space. Um, so we wanted to kind of keep the, everything that was wonderful about the experience and fix all the things that we didn't appreciate. Um, so that was, a, that was the idea. Yeah. And, and talk a little bit more about you know, some of the elements you guys unpacked when you thought through this idea as the one to pursue. So you, you outlined, you know, kind of a couple of things in terms of your guys's personal experience. I think Keith Raboway actually has a really good quote on this, which is, uh, and I think this actually encapsulates Squire, which is, you know, a highly fragmented space, really low NPS, and then you create a vertical solution around it. I'm curious kind of when mm -hmm. you and Dave were, you know, batting through these different ideas, what, what were some of those elements you guys unpacked that got you excited about, you know, an opportunity like Squire? So we spent a lot of time just hanging out in barbershops. <laughs> you know, sometimes we'd have to get haircuts that we didn't need just to get the attention of the, of the barber and, and the owner. Um, and we would also talk to, uh, you know, the clients, you know, the guys uh, sitting in the waiting room, kind of waiting to get their haircut. 
And at first, you know, we started from our own experience, our own pain points. Um, I knew what I didn't like, you know, but I didn't know if that was something that was applicable to other people. And I had no idea what the owners and the barbershops, the barbers themselves um, were experiencing. Um, so the more we spoke to people, the more we started realizing that all the things that we didn't like about the experience, we were seeing other people say the same thing. And it wasn't just like any particular type of barbershop it was across all ethnicities, all walks of life. Uh, God was saying, you know, I don't like the wait. I don't like the inconvenience. I want to be able to pay in tips seamlessly. I don't want to have to go to the ATM and get cash, all those kinds of things. So that made us think, okay, maybe this is a bigger problem than we initially thought. Maybe it's something that a lot, that a lot of people are experiencing. Then on the business side, there were, that was even more insightful because we found that um, the barbershop owners in particular uh, really were having a lot of pain points when it came to operating and running their business. Um, they were using two or three you know, different software systems to run their business. And these are not super like high tech you know, people. They're, they're, you know, they're blue collar, they're, they're art, artistic. You know, there's a lot of skills that they have, but like managing software is not necessarily one of them. Um, so when we saw that, we thought, okay, on the business side, there definitely is an opportunity as well. Although the first version of the product that we built was very much focused on consumer. Um, we, were, we, we built it thinking we would create, create an app that would be you know, great for the consumer to discover, book, pay, tip. And then it worked for the individual barber. Um, but that ended up not being the product that worked for us. Uh, but initially, that's what we were trying to solve for. You guys, you guys did something unique, right? And I might have this wrong, but I, I think I remember this kind of from the story. You didn't just build the tech. I mean, early in the journey, you guys actually bought a barbershop. Is that right? Yeah. So we um, first, we, we, we came up with MVP, which was like an iOS app, uh, kind of like Uber for barbers at, at the time, is what, we were, what we were going with. And we thought that was going to be, you know, best things in sliced bread. It was solved a lot of problems as users. But what we found is the barbers really weren't adopting it the way we thought they would. Um, so right around that time, we realized that what we needed was more of a B2B solution and more of like an end-to-end, um, you know, tool for the entire sh- shop uh, to better operate and for the owner specifically to use. So at that time, we couldn't get any shop owners to use our product. <laughs> like, and we, were, we got one and it was a shop in Chelsea, New York. Um, and it was kind of the first test uh, kitchen for us to, to start trying to build the, the, the was now what we call it commander. It's basically the shop operation um, uh, application. Um, and it was going okay. You know, we we're building it. We, we were working with them. It was like our, our initial user. And then a, a month or so in, uh, the owner said, you know what, this barbershop is not going well for me. Um, I'm going to close it down, fire all the barbers, and I'm moving back to San Francisco to start a tech company. <laughs> so <laughs> we were super distraught and didn't know what to do. This was like the only customer we had that was really using our new product. Um, so we convinced him to actually let us step in and take over the shop, um, assume the lease, and essentially run the shop and operate it and take on all the risk. And for us at that time, you know, I think we had to put about $20,000 or so uh, down to take over the lease. And we, we may have had like 60,000 in our bank account at the time. So like, it was a, it was kind of a like bet, you know, bet the house kind of, kind of it was like, a, it was a big risk for us uh, from, from like a capital standpoint. Um, but we decided to do it and it ended up being a really great experience. We learned so much. We ran it for about a year as we, we built out kind of V2 of the product. 
Yeah. So walk me through two things, right? So one is one is kind of that decision to to buy the barbershop. As you mentioned, it wasn't trivial, right? I mean, 20 grand, you have 60 grand in the bank. So that, that's a big decision, right? Uh, it's also unconventional, right? Because typically when most people build software, you, you might spend time with customers, but you don't necessarily have to, you know, if you're building small business tech, you don't have to go buy a small business necessarily. So tell me through a little bit of kind of that decisioning you guys thought through. And then maybe as a, as a second part to that, um, you know, the experience, like you said, is invaluable, right? When you're actually running your end customer. So I'm curious about, you know, some of the big insights and stuff you guys learned from the shop, but maybe we can take kind of the first yeah. part of that, you know, first. Uh, yeah, so, so uh, we knew at that point that we were pretty focused on doing a vertical play. Um, we wanted to really hone in on barbershops and we saw that there was an opportunity there to kind of carve out a lane that we could dominate um, that other companies just weren't thinking about. So with that being the case, the question is like, how do we become the best at this? Better than any of the bigger companies, any of the horizontal companies. And we, we realized that in order to be the best, we really needed to understand our customers better than anyone else in the world. And when this opportunity presented itself, that um, we realized that there's no other time we're going to have the opportunity to like put ourselves in the shoes of our owners, like quite literally run the shop, do everything but cut hair, manage the barbers, run the front desk. Um, and although it was a risk, we thought that the potential of what we could learn um, could make it more than worth it. And also, you know, running a barbershop it could give us another avenue to have some extra revenue <laughs> at that time when we were not making a lot of revenue at all, um, which, you know, eventually we were, we were able to do that as well. Um, so all in all, it ended up being a, a, a risk that was well worth it. Yeah. And what were, what were some of those insights you guys learned from actually like spending time in the shop, right? You mentioned you, you had the second turn of the product. So what, you know, what was the experience in the shop over the observations that took you kind of from V1 to V2? Yeah. So we had an idea that, okay, we need, we need something that will allow, you know, the entire shop to, you know, to run based off and not just the individual barber. That's what the first app that we built did. And that wasn't getting traction. Um, we needed something, we needed to build something that would be um, essential for the shop's operations, as opposed to something that they could use when they want to. That's what we're running into with V1. Um, but we didn't know exactly what that entailed. As we put ourselves in the shoes of the, of the shop owners, uh, first thing immediately was we needed an integrated point of sale system. Yep. Um, otherwise, there was just a gaping hole for you know, for Square or for any other, you know, good POS system to come in and it would be hard for us to build around that um, or try to integrate with them. We realized early on that like, it's just such a, it's a very disjointed process when you're taking payments, um, card not present payments through Squire, card present payments through some other platform and then trying to make it all work on the back end was just too painful. So that was the immediate realization that, okay, we, we need to roll out, um, we need to own the, the whole stack, you know, if you will. Um, and eventually that was the first, you know, highest priority for us was to, to figure out how to, how to improve that and make it all squat. Um, another thing that we realized was how challenging as an owner it is to manage, um, the barbers in the shop. Hmm. Um, so a lot, a lot of shops will have like a, a manager, uh, a, usually also a barber, usually like a head barber, somebody who's more experienced and he or she will help manage the other barbers. 
Um, that's very common. So we had that. There was a barber at the shop that had that position. And uh, within about a week or so of us taking over, um, he quit. And and it, 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 it was a you know it was not a, a subtle quit either quitting either he he stormed off he was very upset about us being there uh, he never wanted to be squire in the first place um so so that so it put us in a position where now like the one the one guy who really knows how to do this is gone <laughs> we have to figure it out um and and what we learned is that managing you know the payment to the barbers accounting for tips um. Paying them out um, was was very challenging because there's just so many nuances in how different shops are set up. So we immediately wanted to build something that could streamline that process, um, and we eventually did that as well. Um, there were, you know, I could go on, but th those are just a couple couple examples of things that we we learned. Yeah, yeah I it, it's helpful to hear kind of those details because there's something there's something you've said before that's interesting, and I want you to unpack it, which is. I think something unique to barbershop. So you've said barbers don't look at the barbershop or the profession as their job. They look at it as their calling, right? And I imagine that there were some flares of that probably, you know, in this experience with this barber kind of walking out the door, just un unpack what that means and kind of why, I guess, understanding that from a cultural perspective is so important when you're building a product like Squire. Yeah. So I'll, as a way of explanation out, give a counter example that you'll be familiar with. Um, so when I juxtapose you know, barbers to my previous profession, which is lawyers, and, and I remember, you know, particularly in corporate law, how it was just this group of super, you know, intelligent, accomplished people who could do anything in the world that they wanted to do. And so many of them were just so miserable and unhappy and unfulfilled with, with their career choice, me included. Um, and I, and I, it was always, weird to me it's like why are we doing this <laughs> you know like what is it just for the money and for me it was and for a lot of other people I guess it is as well um and when I compare that to the barbers that I work with they're like kind of like the complete opposite you know yeah. like for the most part they are very fulfilled by what they do they love the interaction of working with their clients um of being part of the community of where they live of hearing people's problems as they're giving them a haircut and providing a service that they know really touches and, and like helps the lives of, of the people who, whose hair they're cutting. Um, and, and many of them are very creative. You know, they're very artistic. They, they, they see their, uh, the services they provide of cutting hair as like a form of artistic expression. Um, and I, I think that that's, you know, it's very inspiring. Um, and it's, it's also, you know, something that we try to always stay close to as a, as a business and as in a company and try to appeal to and, and, and be a company that really resonates um, with how these, these business owners and these professionals see themselves. Um, and it's not, we don't always succeed at that, but that's what we aspire, uh, aspire to achieve. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I love, I just really love working with this community of, of professionals, uh, yeah. Yeah, so you guys, um... So you guys built the product, you kind of started getting traction in the business. Um, you, you raised some pretty big rounds since then. I, I, I want to talk specifically about, you know, the round before I think this latest round, because the timing of that was, was really interesting, given what was going on in the world. We'll talk about that. But I'm curious, kind of yeah. even before that, you know, kind of monster round and you had traction and such, uh, what was it like fundraising for this product? You know, there's this adage in kind of tech and, and venture, which is it's really difficult for people 
you know, to fund things when they don't see and, and live the problem, right? And, you know, if you think about kind of most folks in, in venture capital, I mean, they come from academic backgrounds like yours at Yale, right? Harvard, Stanford, et cetera. You know, but a lot of them didn't grow up going to the barbershop, et cetera, right? And so they didn't kind of see yeah. and live this problem. I'm just curious what the experience was like in the early days, you know, pre-traction stuff, fundraising for, for, this, for this idea. Yeah, it, it, was, it was tough. Early on, it was, it was very difficult to get investors excited about the opportunity. They knew that we were building something that was solving a problem. You know, they, they, they kind of understood conceptually. Um, when, I, when we would explain, like, these are all the issues that, that, they were, that we're solving, we're making a better experience. But it was hard for them to, to get excited about the space. And I think some of that may be to, due to the kind of just the bias, uh, like you said, of, you know, they didn't go to barbershops or don't go to bar, didn't grow up going to barbershops. Some of it, I think, is probably like maybe some coastal, you know, Silicon Valley elitism a little bit of like, you know, barbers are very blue collar kind of, you know, and at the time that wasn't sexy, you know, tech for blue collar type workers is like not something that a lot of people thought was interesting or exciting. And it, it, it seemed like, it, like, a, like an easy product to build. Like, oh yeah, barbershops, yeah, anybody can build that. Like, why are you working on that? Kind of attitude. <laughs> um, and, and I think, you know, some of them didn't take the time to really dig in. And, and the question was always the TAM. And yep. like you said, I think at the inception of, of, of this, um, you, um, uh, you were saying how like it's very fragmented um, and it's super fragmented. There's no, every state has their own laws about how barbershops are regulated. So as, as a result, there's no like cohesive, like national you know, place you can get like data on like barbershops nationally. So if you Google, number of barbershops in the US. So like I haven't done it in a while, but when you used to, there'd be like some random department of labor thing where it'd say like 8,000 barbers in the US or something like that. So like these investors, they would they would Google it and they would see that and they'd be like, well, here it says there's 8,000 barbershops in the US. And you know, by our calculation, that's you know that TAM is very and it's like, are you fucking kidding me? Like, do you have common sense? <laughs> there's more than 8,000 barbershops in Manhattan probably, <laughs> you know what I mean, like in New York, like there's no way there's only 8,000 barbershops in all the U.S. So we had to, we had to like be very intentional and proactive about getting around that bias and like really trying to get them to see how big a space this is, how this is yeah. the only service that men get on a regular basis. So that's like half the population gets this service you know, consistently um, throughout their lives until they lose their hair. Um, and we used to do something where, where we would, uh, wherever the uh, meeting was, where the VC's office was, I, I would go there, I would uh, go on Yelp and put in that address and then like uh, search for like all the shops that are like in a whatever five mile radius of, of that, uh, of their office. And then in the meeting, you know, I'd be like, you know, you probably don't even think about how many barbershops, but look, right from where your office is. Here's a list of all the shops you probably didn't even notice. And you know, sometimes it works, sometimes it wouldn't, but but um, you know, it's one it's one of those things where like you start thinking, noticing, like, wow, there's a barbershop on like every other block. Yeah, there is. It's, it's a huge opportunity. So um to answer your question in a long-winded way, um, yeah, there was definitely a lot of challenges early on in, in getting excitement around the opportunity. Yeah, no, I think I think the coastal elite thing is 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 very very real, um, and I like that actually pragmatic example, of pulling up barbershops in a five mile radius because you're right. It's like 
most people don't, you, you don't recognize what's not in your kind of periphery or your subconscious, mm-hmm. which is you may walk past the barbershop every single day, but it's just not in your subconscious. So you're not actually actively, actively realizing that you guys. So, so kind of fast forwarding from there, right. You know, you obviously, you raised kind of the initial round, you got product market fit, you got some traction. Um, you got enough traction to raise a pretty big round, not your biggest, but you're a big round, which was 35 million. But you closed that on March 7th of 2020, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, which is crazy. And, and I don't think it, it needs to be spoken why that's crazy. But tell me just a little bit about kind of that experience of closing the round kind of at that point in time. And then really kind of more interestingly, you know, obviously the world completely changed, you know, that month. Right. And so we'll, we'll dig into, you know, maybe we'll spend a little bit of time and kind of dig into a whole bunch of kind of actually operating through that time frame. but just tell me about kind of that fundraising experience and, and, and really kind of the, you know, the following couple of weeks, you know, after raising such a large round. Yes. Yeah, so some things are just luck, you know, some things are just, so sometimes you just get lucky and it's out of your control. And that was one of, one of those moments. Um, we we um we raised the A in 2019. I think it closed around May um 2019, and then um pretty shortly after that we started getting interested for our, for the B and kind of got preempted um by uh, CRV, and um we ended up you know deciding to go with them. We we're very super excited uh, about the partner we were working with, and um you know around December going into the new year. It was just like this is this is you know this this is this is great because we actually did a first close in December so we got a good chunk of the money and then and then um, the second close kind of went into 2020 and we were kind of taking our time you know we were getting some I think some maybe some celebrities involved like you know there was was not a lot of we weren't like feeling super pressured Um, although we knew we needed to close the round it just it's like we didn't think there was a a huge time uh, pressure to to close it quickly. And then, you know, we started hearing about COVID, February or so, January, February. And, and then I'm like, okay, we need to close this. <laughs> we need to, we need to get, I don't know what's going to happen. We need to get this done. And then, yeah, come March, uh, you know, luckily we were able to, to kind of get all the, all the investors, you know, uh, get, it, get everybody to the finish line. And I didn't know everything was going to shut down, whatever it was, the second week of March or, or whatever. So we really just got, had it been two weeks later or three weeks later, maybe it would have never we wouldn't have been able to close it and and because people stopped investing you know as i'm sure yeah. you recall like everybody was like what the what is going on um so so that was just fortunate um and and it's one of those moments where you just have to say you know just be thankful that everything worked out and it put us in a much more um in, in a much better position when you know the shit hit the fan <laughs> because we we, we had you know, we had very health, very healthy balance sheet. So we were able to make decisions um, and have more flexibility than we otherwise would have. Yeah. Yeah. Let's, let's talk about some of those decisions. I mean, we, you know, similarly, the, the business I run is the services business and, and we're at pretty decent scale. And it, it's, it's just such a, it, it's, it's like a meteor hitting your business, right? Like you, yeah. you have to react in a way that's just completely different than, you know, what you might've planned in, in, you know, kind of your, your, assessment of risk. It's, it's just, it's a, it's a black swan event, right? Yeah. I think there's two types of decisions you can make in that situation for, for any decision that you're making. 
uh, and they're not mutually exclusive, but one framework I, I use to think about it is it's basically, you can make an offensive decision or a defensive decision. Right. And the interesting thing is, you know, sometimes in defensive situations, they subtly have a tinge of offense in them. So what I mean by that is, you know, a company like yours, it's, it's like building trust in your community. You might take a decision. That's a defensive decision. It's not actually giving you revenue. It's not actually growing your business, you know, but it has some element of offense in there, which is you're building trust, you're building camaraderie, you know, et cetera. So maybe short-term defensive, but long-term offensive. I'm, I'm curious kind of what were the big decisions you guys made in those early, you know, kind of moments after it became very clear what was going on in the world. Um, and at that point in time, you know, did you have kind of any element of, Hey, this is going to long-term kind of work out this way and this way and this way, or it was, it was literally, I'm going to make this decision now because there's really, if we don't make this decision now, the next decision is academic, right? It doesn't even matter to look forward or so. Just walk me through some of kind of those big decisions you guys had to make and, and maybe some of the thinking around it. Yeah. We made a company-wide decision at, at, at the time when all of our customers started shutting down um, that we, we were going to be super customer-focused. Like we, 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 our, our North Star was going to be what's going to help our customers because as hard as this is for us, it's, it's harder for them. Yeah. And, um, and that was really kind of our, our guiding principle for the decisions that, that, that we made. Um, and, and also, you know, secondarily, we, we decided that we were also going to be um, focused on helping our employees as well. Um, so, the, so there were two, two pretty big high-level questions with respect to both of those um, points. And, and the first was like, do we continue charging our customers SaaS, you know, like, which is a component of our revenue? Um, it's, so our revenue is, is you know, a SaaS subscription, and then it's also transaction-based. Now, obviously, when they're shut down, all of our transaction, which is the majority of our revenue, goes to, goes to zero. So in April of 2020, you know, we had the conversation, you know, amongst the leadership team and, and as well as our board. It's like, okay, like, so what do we, what do we, what do we do here um, for the uh, subscription component? And to your point about being defensive and offensive, it was a defensive play, I guess, because it wasn't going to help, help, help us make more money, but we thought it was the right thing to do. We thought these customers are struggling you know, they're struggling to put food on the table, some of them, because, you know, they, they can't work from Zoom like, like many other professions. Um, so we decided to waive subscription for the, all of 2020, and we actually extended it deep into 2021 as well. But at that time, the decision was made to, to waive it for the, for the rest of 2020. And, um, you know, there was some risk for us because, you know, that, that's money, all, you know, the money that we're leaving on the table. Um, and, and also it was, there was a lot of uncertainty about when businesses would reopen. We didn't know how long it would take. Um, fortunately, they, when they reopened, the, the rebound was pretty fast, um, but we still thought that waiving subscription was the right thing to do because if you recall, they reopened, they shut down, they reopened, they shut down, like different regions were doing different things. There was just so much uncertainty that we said, you know what, forget it. Let's just wait for everybody and we'll, we'll worry about how to make up for that later and we'll, we'll, we'll eat that cost. Um, you know, the second thing was our, was our employees. I'm, I'm sure you remember like a lot of companies at that time, particularly growth stage companies, like started just cutting people, like yep. preemptively, they preemptively just started like cutting their workforce. And there were voices, you know, from some of our investors that were, that were urging us to, to, to do something similar. 
But my standpoint was one, like, we just raised the Series B from a capital standpoint, like, we're not, we're not hurting. And we don't know how long this is going to last. We don't know how long our, our revenue is going to be at zero, essentially. So, like, instead of, like, preemptively making decisions that are, are going to, like, have huge impacts on our employees' lives, like, in the middle of a pandemic, let's, let's see. Let's see how this shapes out. And if things rebound, which they did, we're going to need these people in place for us to take advantage of that. So that that was that was the decision on, on that on that point. And I think both of those ended up actually also being offensive as well, um, because when when during the summer of 2020, when states started reopening, there was a huge pent up demand for haircuts. Most of the barbershops didn't shut down; they were able to stay open. So when they reopened, they were doing better than ever. As a result, our revenue shot back up. And then also because we weren't charging subscription, we started getting really high velocity of new new logos, new logos that for the first time realized they needed, uh, you know, they needed to digitize, they needed to not take cash only, they needed to kind of have these tools to, to better prepare them, you know, if something like this were to happen again. So we we saw huge tailwinds uh, in our business coming out of it, and because we didn't cut our workforce significantly, we had the people in place that were ready to just hit the ground running when the time was right. So I think we made the right decisions um, in hindsight, but at the time it was, you know, there was, there was just so much uncertainty. Yeah. We had a really similar experience, which was, you know, we didn't lay, we didn't lay anybody off and we kind of used, used the year really to build, you know, to develop folks, to train, to kind of internally focus and say, okay, if clients weren't kind of moving faster or we weren't expanding or upselling or et cetera, what can we do to make ourselves kind of leaner, faster, more efficient, smarter, et cetera? Uh, in, in hindsight, similarly, it, it worked out well because we were able to capitalize on demand when it came back probably more quickly than other folks in the industry. Uh, but man, was it not an obvious decision, you know, when we made that decision. Um, when you guys, you know, when, when you looked at the business and such, right, and you were kind of in that, in that opportunity to capitalize on the other side, how long did it take for the business to get back on track? I spent a while since I looked at this, but I think it went down to pretty much zero in April. Um, and I think I think by like June, I think we're already at pre pre pandemic level. Wow. Like so it was a really quick jump. Out. Yeah. It was just quick. Yeah. Quicker yeah. than quicker than you know I had anticipated. Um, and and then it would just it was just continued really, really, you know, high growth. And then um, I think there was a second shutdown at some point. I don't know if it was yep. the end of that year or whatever. Then we kind of felt that again. But but overall, net, net, it, it was good for our, our business, which is very weird to say. Um, but but yeah, we, we, we saw more, uh, I think, more acceleration um, Due, due to it than we otherwise would have. Yeah, due to it. Yeah, that's really interesting. So you so you guys then, so after after the B, you raised another large round, I think it was last July or so from Tiger, yeah. right? Um, and I think that, that starts to become interesting just kind of outside in because at that point, you're basically saying, okay, look, you know, we're, we're kind of sold on the market, we're sold on the product, kind of product one is working, maybe product two is working, right? There's enough of a customer base, et cetera. 
But when you're raising kind of that level of money at that stage, now you're really selling. It's not kind of like a one product, two product company. You're selling a platform and, and a much, much bigger mm-hmm. vision. And so I want to get into that a little bit, right? Because we talked, we, we kind of framed it up at the outset of the discussion about this being a vertical play, right? And so kind of give me a perspective of, you know, when you think about kind of expanding, expanding that platform or expanding the solution, both up and down the stack. Right. Where do you go from, you know, kind of being the core application for barbershops, like a B2B, uh, B2B solution in current form? What are those elements up the stack and down the stack, you know, that you guys are thinking about? Yeah. So I think for, for vertical, uh, vertical sustenances, you need to think about like what's, what's the wedge that's going to get your foot in the door? Like what's, what's the, the core essential need that almost all of your customers have that either no one else is providing or they're not providing as well as you can um that'll kind of allow you to get that relationship with them and then once you once you have for us i would say it, it's appointment booking like it's you know having having because that's like the, the kind of like the, the core thing that really is the foundation of what everything else is built on top of if you don't have that you're not going to be able to touch all the other elements of the business um, so, so, you know, first solve that problem, do it well, hopefully do it better than any other, any of the competitors. And then once you're in there and, and you build something that they're relying on, that they're using every day for their operations, um, you can start picking off other areas. Um, and, and, and because you're fully integrated into, into their business, you can, you can have a, a more seamless experience and a, a fully integrated experience when you start to bring in um, these other you know, f- uh, features and, and functionality. So booking first, then for us with the point of sale system, um, as I mentioned, as I mentioned earlier, uh, then it was probably payouts to the barbers, you know, which we could call it payroll, but it's, it's essentially how the owner is paying, paying the barbers. Um, and so that that's something that we also you know built uh, a while ago to 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 capture that. Um, and if and um, if you notice, like one theme around this, for, from my perspective, is like this is all related to the flow of money. So the money originally goes from the customer to the shop, the shop to the barber, and then what will happen there typically is the barber would deposit money in Bank of America or whatever and, and go spend it and then wait till he gets another haircut or whatever. So then the question for us is like how how could we ex- expand our you know the Squire ecosystem or the, our, our universe of things that we offer to also include uh, something to capture that so it doesn't go to the bank his other bank bank it, it stays within Squire. Yep. And then in the meantime also add more value to him. So then that's like more of like a financial services layer. Yep. Um, that we're that we've built, um, which we call you know Squire Capital, which which includes uh, bank accounts uh, for the individual barbers, uh, debit cards um, for the barbers as well as the shop owner, um, and then that allows us to do things like you know loans based off their cash, uh, you know based off their transaction volume. We know how much money they're going to make. We can we easily easy easily have the data uh, to control that as well. So that's just one example of like how I'm thinking about like. The goal is to go wide within the vertical, to go deep, and and everything should be driven by what's more valuable, what's gonna what's gonna uh, provide a better experience uh, to the customer. 
And so those are the things that we're thinking about. And then, you know, there's other ways um, um, as well, more so like on the con consumer side, you know, yeah. things that we can think about is like, how can we even make this a better experience for their client? Um, and from there, you know, we'll just cont continue to get more market share and also build the best experience. Yeah, Squire Capital is one of the more interesting parts of the ecosystem to me for, for kind of two reasons. But the main one is, so there's a ton of fintech activity for folks that are underbanked, right? I mean, there's there's folks that are coming out with their own neobanks or or lending or, or earned wage access, et cetera. But you guys have a unique position, which is what makes it interesting to me. And, and I want you to talk a little bit maybe about the concept or the thought process of when you have the upstream platform, right, like Squire, what what makes for that being the interesting entry point into kind of re this related but tangential space, right? So, so the the easy way to think about that, kind of for folks listening, is you know why would why would kind of Squire be positioned well to have a debit card or to give financial services, lending, et cetera, right? Versus any of these other kind of neo banks, et cetera, that are maybe going after. Similar socio, uh, similar socioeconomic type folks, demographics, et cetera. Why would Squire have a more advantage position, you know, in, in building yeah. those products? Yeah, it's because we're we're so deeply integrated in their business and in, in their workflow. Like Squire is the type of product where if we go, if we go down, they can't operate. They not only they can't they can't book appointments, they can't charge their customers, they can't pay the barbers like things cease, it comes to a screeching halt. <laughs> and, and, you know, we've seen that before when things don't go well, like we immediately, we, we, we hear from them, uh, from, our, from our customers and we have, we have to fix things as fast as possible because it's so essential to their daily lives. Um, you know, our mobile app, they are on it constantly throughout the day, checking it all day to see their appointments, the individual barbers, uh, to see their customer list, to see how much money they made for the day, to see when they're gonna get their next deposit. So because we have that relationship um, where, where we are like an, an uh, integral part of their lives um, and hopefully a trusted one, um, adding additional features, additional services becomes much more seamless and it becomes much more of a natural progression as opposed to introducing you know, something completely new. That's why I, I love like, you know, they call it like the walled garden or, you know, ecosystem. When you look at like Apple, for, for example, it's like if you, if you have, if you're an Apple person and you, you're not going to, you have an iPhone and a MacBook Pro and AirPods, it's very difficult for, for Android, for any other to, to get, to wedge themselves in there. Totally. You know, that's why, you know, I, I, I love, I love Kanye. You know, I, I love everything he does. I'm not buying a stem. <laughs> because it's gonna, it's just gonna make it a more difficult experience for me to listen to my music. Like I, I'm just, I like Apple Music because it's easy and it's part of the ecosystem that I that I touch every single day. Apple products touch my life. Yeah. So so we we look to to build something similar for our you know specific customers um, as well. Yeah, the walled garden analogy is a really good one, and and I'm curious because this is typically attention for folks building platform businesses is. Uh, maybe you can shed some light on how you think about product chronology. And, and what I mean by that is kind of the viewpoint of whether you go deeper into the core software itself, right? For you guys, it's the POS, you know, maybe inventory management, payroll, et cetera. Um, you know, or, you know, do you build out kind of these adjacent pieces upstream? We didn't, we didn't talk about this much um, 
but I would imagine you can build out kind of services or products around discovery, right? So earlier in the conversation we were talking about, you'd go into a venture meeting and you'd pull it up on Yelp, right? Hey, take a look mm-hmm. at kind of all of these, you know, barbershops nearby. So I, I imagine there's some element, you know, of discovery that can be built into the product for barbers um, and barbershops themselves to get more customers. And then kind of the downstream stuff we talked about payments, you know, there could be insurance, lending, et cetera. How, how do you think about the balance of that chronology of, you know, do we go really deep into kind of application, you know, appointment setting, booking, you know, those pieces versus the ecosystem? There's always a tension there, you know, when yeah. you're building from a product perspective, right? Yeah. Historically, I've been very much in the mind of you, you go deep and, and really own as much of the stack as possible. Yeah. And, and, and own the experience and, and, and the data and, and be really super protective about, about owning all that and, and, and not letting other companies, um, you know, into that walled garden. Um, I think as you scale, it becomes more of a balance between cost, speed, getting products out and, and learning from that. Um, and, and, and then, you know, also that desire to go deep. Um, so I think depending on the feature, depending on how core it is um, to, the, to the business and to, to the platform, sometimes it, it can make sense just so you can move faster, so you can get things out and test things um, to actually you know, build on top of other services. Um, but I think for, for, the, for the core, for the things that are truly core to the, to the platform and to the, to the offering and they're like are closest to the customers, I think it, I think it's it's better to, to go deep and, and, and build as much of that as you can and, and own as much of that as, as you can. Um, you know, I could be wrong, but that's just how, how I look at it. Yep, for sure. I want to I want to round out with a with a more maybe lighthearted question. You guys are I think you're used by over two thousand plus shops now. You're across three continents. What what does the future of a barbershop look like to you? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. Uh, uh, I mean, my answer is going to be very biased, but um, I, for me, it's it's somebody you know finishes barber college, or or they're working at a shop and they're going to start their own shop. Um, it, it's going to it's the default thing for them to do is all they have to do is just get squire, and that's going to that's going to essentially take care of everything they need from an operational standpoint, where they don't really have to worry or think about any of the hard stuff. Um, and it's just like, you know, it's like almost like a digital barbershop in a box. Like you get, you get set up for Squire, everything is handled. And, and I think, you know, as, as we go into the future and technology touches pretty much all elements of our lives, um, that's going to be the expectation, even for small business owners who traditionally, historically haven't been quick to adopt technology. I think, you know, the, the younger, you know, people, millennials and Gen Zs who are going to go on to start businesses, small businesses, obviously they're going to be tech first. Like any small business a Gen Z ever opens, the first thing they're going to do is, is think about what type of technology they need to adopt. So, so, you know, my vision is that for this, this is vertical, you know, Squire is going to be the, the, the default standard um, for barbershops, you know, across the world. And the experience will just continue to get better and better and better for both the operators as well as, you know, for the, for the client, for the person getting a haircut, um, you know, they get to just walk in, get their services, walk out, no cash exchange, just really a delightful experience. Um, and, and the owners and the barbers, I think, will, will 
continue to be more reliant, but also be made uh, better business, you know, professionals and more, and they'll be able to run their businesses more efficiently um, because of the tools that they have at their, their disposal now through, through Squire. Um, so, you know, that, that's how I, that's how I see it, um, see it playing out. Yeah. yeah, no, I think it's, I think it's really cool. I think it, it gives uh, small business tech always, I think gives, gives small business owners, you know, uh, the ability to end up doing what they love more, either finding the fulfillment or spending more time with their customers or growing their business or so. So you guys are building a, you guys are building a cool product and, and um, all tech, it doesn't do good in the world, but I, I think your guys' product is, is definitely doing good in the world. So, so I Thank salute you. you guys, you know, for, uh, for building it song. This was, this was a ton of fun. I, you know, I appreciate you taking the time to come on, share a little bit more about, you know, the story and, and looking forward to, you know, continue to track how, how Squire does over the years. Thank you. It was a lot of fun.